Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to a very special bonus episode of the Doc Lounge podcast. I'm sure you can all guess what we're going to talk about today. Um, drum roll, please. COVID-19. So the respiratory disease caused by the new coronavirus continues to spread around the world and in the United States. Many countries are asking people to stay at home and self-quarantine, which I'm sure you're all aware of. Um, by now. The World Health Organization has officially called the disease a pandemic. The United States has declared the pandemic a national emergency and states throughout the country are taking major measures to try their best to slow the spread of the disease. So with this big pandemic happening, everybody's talking. There's a million different outlets to Get information from social media, our news, bloggers, journalists, I mean, our next door neighbor, everyone's got information for you. So we wanted to offer our listeners an opportunity to learn more about this virus straight from the horse's mouth, an actual infectious disease physician. So on this bonus episode, John and I got to talk to Dr. Ian Franny, an infectious disease doctor out of Arkansas. And he shared with us his knowledge on COVID-19 and really gives us a fact or fiction perspective on what's going on with the coronavirus. So we're really excited to share this episode with you. So John, Dr. Franny and I are in three different locations right now. Um, So we're podcasting remotely and social distancing. So please forgive any audio quality you know, ups and downs throughout this episode. Obviously, we did our best to do this remotely and as clear as possible. Uh, That being said, let's get started. Well, first of all, Dr. Frani, thank you so much for giving us some of your time today. I know for all you ID doctors and medical professionals in general, this is a very busy time. Mm -hmm. No problem. So Dr. Frani, to get started, In your own words, can you give us an explanation of what COVID-19 actually is? Sure. I mean, COVID-19 is basically a designation. It's short for coronavirus 2019. So, you know, to to, to know what COVID-19 is, you have to know what coronavirus is, which is basically, you know, they they are a group or a viruses called envelope viruses uh, because they have this envelope coating on them. Uh, they are coated in some oil and some bilayers, and these bilayers actually stick out like a crown, and that's why you have the name Corona. Uh, it's Latin for crown. So you know they. Um, some people may not know what coronavirus is, or may not be familiar with what it is. But if I mention SARS, or if I mention MERS, then suddenly you know people would remember. Oh yeah, I mean 2003. In 2003, there's SARS. 2012, there's SARS in Saudi Arabia. So those both are coronaviruses. They may not be in this category as the COVID-19, but they belong in the same family. So, so those basically are, are a group of you know, viruses. Currently in the U.S., we have four endemic coronaviruses, meaning uh, we have coronaviruses that's already in circulation that is going you know, along the season. And the COVID-19 is basically the one that, that appeared uh, late December 2019, at the end of 2019, um, as you know, uh, in Wuhan, which is a city in uh, China. Yeah. Dr. Fani, you mentioned there was a few things that you, you really wanted to clarify for the benefit of our listeners. Uh, yeah. Share with um, us what you're, what you're thinking. Sure. I mean, one of the things that you have to, you know, to have to clarify is, Corona, it's a virus, you know, there is a name on it, it's coronavirus. So basically it's, it's not something that, that is new. Um, it's new in terms of, uh, terms of the, the, the type, but coronavirus has been an important human and animal pathogen even before. So everybody's aware of it. It's just that um, in the recent December 2019, you know, this novel coronavirus or novel or new coronavirus was identified. And there's something that is different in terms of strain from the other known coronaviruses. Interesting. And I learned that this strain started in China. Is that information correct? Yeah. So I mean, it's, it's different 
it's so it's difficult to say originally or not, but it was first documented there uh, in Wuhan uh, along December 2019. Uh, basically, one of the doctors identified a patient who visited the mark, you know, who a patient who developed some type of pneumonia that is not responding to the common antibiotics that is negative for other testing, and they identified that as the first reported case of coronavirus. Um, investigation is still going on regarding exactly where it originated, you know, how it spread out. But basically, to answer your question, yes, it's the first case was first documented in, in, uh, in China. Mm -hmm. There's gotcha. some speculation that it occurred in a wet market there. Uh, yes, that, that is correct. Uh, so it says that, um, you know, it, it started from some people who visited a seafood market in China. Um, but, you know, the, some of the first reported cases actually have no link to the seafood market. So we're not sure if it's just happenstance that the first few was, was documented to be in that market. But some of the other people who were diagnosed had no link with the, with the seafood market. But, you know, it's fairly interesting to, to get that tidbit of information as well. Gotcha. Right. I'm curious, um, there, there's some speculation that this thing has been here on our shores uh, for quite a while, but maybe gone undetected. Do you subscribe to that theory? Well, that's, and that's where, where I, I clarified myself early on with, you know, when you asked me, does it originate in China? Because we don't know yet. We, we know that the first cases were documented there, um, but, uh, most likely, most likely it is uh, originates originated from China, um, but but in terms of are you for sure it originated there? We cannot be for sure because you are correct. Some people are asymptomatic, but it doesn't mean you're not shedding. Meaning you can be walking around and shedding the virus uh, without you actually having symptoms and. You know, those could be the initial cases or the patient zero on, on these patients with corona, and nobody would know. But because the cluster of cases was first identified there, the the number of people um, in terms of hospital admissions, in terms of diagnosis, were first detected in China. I think it's proved that it, it's not um, it's not a bad not conclusion, but it's not a bad thought to think that. You know, this thing uh, originated, you know, from from China. Right, Doctor Franny, when you watch the news right now, do you feel like they're giving accurate information to the public? Well, it depends on what media you are listening to. Um, the problem here is where we're in a day and age where information can be taken, can be, you know, can be ingested from anywhere. You go to the internet, you go to Twitter, you go to any website out there, and they all talk about this coronavirus. Some are reputable, of course, and you know, like CDC, IDSA, WHO websites, government websites, of course, are legitimate um, websites of of medical journals are a very good resource for actual published data uh, about coronaviruses. But on the far side of it, and you know, I, I don't want to, to to generalize everything, but you also have celebrities, politicians, um, non-medical personnel who basically provide their opinion on what corona is. And unfortunately, as sad as it seems, or as sad as sad it may be, the population would rather listen, you know, most of the time would listen to them than the mm -hmm. actual medical doctors uh, because, you know, they think that Either the medical doctors are are conspiracy theorists, were hiding something, or doing something like that, and so they listen to people who probably heard something that was discussed by someone, that was discussed by someone, and then that's why you have this spread of information, false information. So it, it depends on which information, but yeah, I, I guess a lot of the information you get is from television. So I would be very uh, selective on which one you, you actually listen to it, which one you actually take in, in as fact. Yeah. That's uh, terrific advice, uh, not just specific to this topic, but to any number of topics day-to-day uh, -to -day and how people choose to stay informed. Uh, tell us, uh, how how is the situation where you are? So, 
in the situation where I am, where we, we do have cases in the state that is documented uh, positive, but we still we are still at the phase where the hospital is not quite getting overwhelmed yet. Um, the hospital has been preparing for it. We have policies in place, uh, and we have constant communication with the state department. And you know the the best way to address this is to make sure that everybody in the hospital are on the same page on what the hospital policy is. And so from from at least from my standpoint, it's not yet as bad as it is in New York or Las Vegas or uh, or other countries where or other countries where there's like a bunch of cases like Italy that's that's uh, growing. Mm-hmm. Just for our listeners' benefit, uh, just to, to be certain about this, you're currently in Massachusetts, is that right? No, I'm I'm, I'm now in Arkansas. So, oh, okay, uh, that's moved, right. Yeah, I actually uh, moved from from Massachusetts last week last year to Arkansas, um, which I think provided me a lot of benefit because right now the the main goal is to is to kind of do social distancing in terms of you know, in terms of gathering, in terms of walking around. And and there's a lot of things in common in Los Angeles, Las Vegas, New York, and Massachusetts. And all of them have a very high population in terms of square inch of people, right? Exactly. So, so it's very difficult to practice social distancing, especially in Massachusetts, where the moment you leave your apartment, there's two lines of people walking around, and the main mode of transportation is a subway. Mm-hmm. So I think it it helped to, to my benefit that there's a lot of free space, you know, there's a lot of wide areas where even if you walk into Walmart, there's more than six feet from the next person you're going to walk to. Yeah. Well, I bet you're feeling pretty good about being in uh, Arkansas. Mm-hmm. It is, but it does, you know, it, it is, but you, you cannot be complacent because at this point in time, um, travel history is no longer the main risk, you know, it's not the end-all, be-all criteria for being positive for corona. We already surpassed that time where if you don't have travel history, you don't, you don't need to be screened for corona. We, I think we were past that time already. I think now we should be thinking of person-to-person contact within the city or within the state. And as you know, you know, people keep walking around, keep traveling. So the, there's, it's, it's, it's nice that... It's good to be optimistic and it's good to be prepared, but you should never be complacent in terms of of how you prepare and and what you what you what you have to expect. You know, what what is your uh, personal regimen for, I guess, sanitizing, for lack of a better term here, uh, just as an example, and put it this in context. I returned from the grocery store yesterday to uh, resupply. Um, mm-hmm. just some basic things, some fresh produce sure. and the, the grocery store was well, well stocked. Uh, there were not a lot of people there, but you know, I, I felt like it was necessary for me to go through this decontamination process before I brought a lot of these things that have been handled by multiple people into my home. What, what are you doing to prevent that sort of community spread? Well, the, the key there is to know how the virus is transmitted. And the main form of transmission is person to person, mainly by contact. Um, it's also transmitted to droplet, but a lot of the main transmission is through contact. And that's why the trust of the healthcare uh, community is hand wash, meaning um, if, you went, oh, if you went somewhere and you try to handle things that people, other people are handling, or you try to take care of patients, you always do hand washing, proper hand washing. That means you don't just put your hands into the faucet, like let the water run for five seconds and then stop or get some small amount of soap, five seconds and stop. The recommended is at least minimum of 20 seconds of hand washing. And if you look at the websites of WHO, uh, CDC, there's actually a proper way of doing the hand washing so you can, you can maximize you know, and eliminate all of the possible contamination that looks incredible in your hand. So my personal thing is, Number one is if you touch something or if you encounter something, always err on the safe side. If you can hand wash with soap and water, then that is my regimen. So if, if I do, let's say I go to 7-Eleven, I, I buy something, 
I go home, then I do my hand washing first before I do anything else. And that's about it, you know. Um, unless I actually come from the hospital, which is different. If I come from the hospital, I go home, I hand wash, and then I take a bath, and then that's about it. So mm-hmm. that, for me, I think is sufficient because you have to understand that, you know, a lot of people you see are wearing masks, walking around, and, you know, um, and it's 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 uh, a lot of in a lot of people have been hoarding masks as well, and the the problem with doing the mask is you know number one, the moment you rearrange, refix, or refocus the the common mask, you know the the garden variety mask, the protection is already gone because the seal is the one that you want to contain. So once you fixed it or rearranged it, or a lot of people like. Pulling it down to their chin while 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 they're not talking to someone and then putting it back up, there's that that already is uh, um, useless. Uh, plus, the regular mask is not something that will last 24 hours. Even the N95 mask, which is the mask that is recommended to healthcare professionals who are in contact with someone who are positive for coronavirus, only lasts uh, at least in published studies is around eight hours. So the the cost efficiency of wearing a mask is not as good as practicing social distancing and hand washing but in terms of healthcare professionals you know be, because they're in close contact with the people personal protective equipment mask gown eye face shield uh is definitely uh a thing that they must use i've been hearing two contradicting um pieces of information one that when you're infected with a virus, it's dormant for 14 days before you have symptoms. And then the other one, it is 72 hours before you have symptoms. Okay. So when you say dorm, so, so dormant is probably not the best word. Um, that The 14 days is the known or possible incubation period. Incubation period is basically the time from where you got the virus until the time you manifest symptoms. So it's not really dormant, it's doing something, it's just taking it 14 days to do something. Gotcha. But it doesn't mean that everything is 14 days. You can get it within 72 hours, you can get it within four days, within five days. But the maximum as far as people, you know, as far as anecdotal cases have shown is up to 14 days. So it's the same with, for example, HIV. HIV has a very long incubation period, meaning you can get the virus but you actually have the HIV manifestation even years after you get it. So it doesn't mean that it's dormant, just just lying there not doing anything. It's doing something, but it's taking it a long time to do something. Yeah. You know? so, okay. so the incubation period maximum is around 14 days. So that information is correct. But it doesn't mean that the symptoms always manifest after 14 days. It can manifest even earlier. and. And I want to say that it's possible or most likely for days because at this point in time, we don't really have that much information regarding what actually the incubation period is. And this is based on cases that is reported, um, that is published, and that is uh, discussed among the medical community. Mm-hmm. So I've been hearing that the virus is really dangerous for seniors to get. What about... Uh, toddlers and babies. I have a lot of little munchkins uh, in my life right now. And with their little immune systems, I was wondering if that's kind of the same thing as uh, seniors. So, you know, in, in the, the immunosuppressed, the elderly is always, and multiple comorbidities, are always, has, always have the highest risk for developing multiple systems. And that is, you know, because their immunity is not as good, and of course they have um, comorbidities as well. Um, but it doesn't mean that because you're, you know, you're a child or you're a baby, you're you're, you're probably not going to get it. you you may you may also get it, but you're more likely to be the vulnerable population the higher the ages. If you look at all of the population that's been infected and died from coronavirus. Most of them are above 80 years old or around 80 years old. Most of them have multiple comorbidities, uh, significantly uh, congestive heart failure, diabetes, hypertension. Um, most of them are female. 
So a lot of the paid people that get affected are actually uh, older people than the younger ones. Mm -hmm. Okay. So with respect to that, Dr. Frani, um, the, the term underlying condition has been used a lot. I, I, I'm curious, what exactly would you describe as an underlying condition? Somebody who, who is it presents with that comorbidity, for instance, I mean, just maybe a little bit of clarity on that for us, please. So, so, so that's an excellent question because it's, it's not really what pre-existing condition means. Um, in, if you look at the, the websites of CDC and WHO, they describe diabetes, heart disease, uh, asthma, pre-existing lung injury as pre-existing conditions. So I think in general, patients who have uncontrolled or un unchecked diseases are definitely at higher risk. Like you may have hypertension, but you're taking medication and your blood pressure is normal. You're most likely less at risk than patients who actually have hypertension and are taking medications or in terms of um, heart uh, asthma or uncontrolled diabetes. You know, if your diabetes is under control, even if your diabetes, your risk is still likely a little bit higher than those who don't have it, but your risk is lower compared to those who have uncontrolled uh, diabetes. So it's very difficult to pinpoint, but chronic comorbid illness is usually what they talk about. And when I say chronic comorbid illness, these are illnesses that people usually usually need to take care of for a longer time that that is uh that can be stabilized like heart disease you can have heart disease uh and you've been taking medications for a long time diabetes is a chronic medical illness asthma is a chronic medical illness and pycema is a chronic medical illness now if you have a fractured arm that probably does not count as a pre-existing comorbid condition if you have uh, um like a bout of diarrhea, that's probably not a coexisting medical condition. But I think what they focused on is those who have chronic medical illness, because a lot of studies show that even if you have these chronic illnesses, you're always in a state of of uh, increased um, sympathetic response. So your your body is a little bit jacked up in terms of compared to normal people, and then your immune system may not be working appropriately. But in terms of chronic, or in terms of pre-existing condition, I think they're referring more to chronic medical issues. Okay, that makes sense to me. Uh, does that explain perhaps the the reason that many people appear to be asymptomatic is because they are otherwise healthy, or mm -hmm. is there some other explanation for that? Sure. So yeah. So viruses in general, um, in terms of causing respiratory disease is not as profoundly symptomatic compared to bacteria. But it does not mean that they cannot cause respiratory failure in patients. Um, yes, uh, comorbid, comorbid illness, being healthy, being young, most likely you will, you will develop either very mild or asymptomatic symptoms. But it doesn't mean that healthy young people will not have uh, if they got infected with corona, will not be uh, one of the serious cases. There are documented cases already of healthy young uh, people who've been diagnosed with corona and have been on a ventilator, and they are perfectly, you know, healthy. But you have to understand that this is not so different uh, compared to influenza. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you look at the influenza cases. It doesn't also, it doesn't, it's not a black and white as well. There are people who are perfectly healthy, young, who develop influenza and suddenly develop into respiratory failure for no reason, even though they live a healthy life. But the majority are asymptomatic and have mild symptoms. So definitely a healthy protoplasm, as we call it, or a healthy body definitely uh, plays a role in terms of how you present the symptom. But it's not a guarantee that you will not present with severity of with severe symptoms. But it's not specific to corona. Respiratory syncytial virus, influenza, can also present the same thing. You know, we just don't, it's just not reported or as widely known in the public compared to what is happening now. Gotcha. So I have a friend with an autoimmune disease and she uh, has been on chloroquine for, I think that's how you say it, for many years. And she recently went to the pharmacy to get it filled. 
and they were all out. And she learned that there is a connection with this medication and the coronavirus. Can you explain that? Yeah. So first of all, just, 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 I just want to lay it out there. There are currently no approved medication for coronavirus. The current advice or recommendation is supportive treatment, meaning if they need a ventilator, you provide them with a ventilator. If they need um, medication to help with their heart or their lung, you give them medication for their lung. If they have secondary bacterial infection, you give them antibiotics. But the virus itself, there's no proven treatment yet. Now, chloroquine or recent studies have shown the other variant, hydroxychloroquine, showed in vitro have activity against uh, SARS-CoV-2 or, or COVID-19. It's not um, approved yet as an actual treatment for it because, like I mentioned, there is no approved treatment. Um, but I've seen people who are hoarding chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine uh, with the hope that, you know, if they got corona, this will decrease the symptoms. We don't know that. There is no, all of the evidence are in vitro. In vitro means from a dish. It's not tested in humans or in vivo. And the problem with in vitro is in vitro doesn't always equal to in vivo or, or testing by petri dish does not equal to, to, to what would happen if a human does it. And the problem is there's no randomized controlled trial or good trial to support that this actually helps. Um, and the other issue is if you started taking this chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, how do you know that it is the one that's helping you and you're not just riding out the natural course of the virus? Mm -hmm. So it's very mm -hmm. difficult, but there are anecdotal evidence, there are studies, and there are in vitro studies, meaning laboratory studies, that chloroquine, especially hydroxychloroquine, does have an effect on coronavirus. Is it something that I would recommend for people to take? No. I would recommend to have an infectious disease physician to consult on the case, and it's a multidisciplinary decision if this is something that needs to be tried or not. Um, but the current recommendation is still supportive. Um, and there's other investigational agents aside from that. Um, uh, the, the hydroxychloroquine in Azithro, I don't know if you guys heard about it, has, has some, some um, significant impact on the SARS-Corona. The problem is the side effect is going to be horrible. Mm. And, you know, some of the, there's use of a person who, who took chloroquine, but is not really the medicated version, actually, you know, actually had, had issues. And that's the problem is you don't, you, you don't take medication without consulting your physician and you don't take it as a prophylaxis. So, so from my standpoint, is it something that I would give to a patient? It depends on the discussion with me, my pulmonologist, and uh, and you know the, the family. If it's something that needs to be tried, there are other investigational agents that is also in the pipeline who have been shown to have effect on the coronavirus, but all of them um, are not approved yet because uh, and all of them are lacking good evidence. When I say good evidence, randomized controlled trial that is. Uh, um, tested on people. So these are all in vitro studies. So I, I've got to ask you something else here that's a little bit off topic, but not too far um, in terms of treatment. Has this virus been transmitted through the air? Is it airborne? Is it transmissible in that, in that regard? Or, or do we have any evidence uh, one way or the other so, as of yet? Yep. Mm -hmm. So the difference between airborne and droplet is how long it stays in the air and the distance it can go to. So droplet precaution, droplets are usually have very a bigger bigger uh, size of droplets that usually extends up to six feet. Meaning if I cough something, it it goes up to six feet. So if you stand 20 feet from me and I cough, you're probably not going to get it. Airborne means um, it's in the air. If you're standing behind me. You're, you're probably going to get it, and it's suspended longer um, in the air and can travel, you know, distances. Now, coronavirus, like any other virus, is a droplet. Um, it's transmitted through droplet, and the droplet goes to the surface or to the skin or to 
devices called like fomites, which is a, a vector for transmission. And through that droplet, when you touch it, and you can you can you can get it, and that's how how it transmits. Droplet and then contact. Now the precaution is always is has initially has been airborne, and the reason for that is we don't know a lot about uh, aerosolization of the coronavirus. Uh, as far as we can tell, droplet precaution uh, it is a its transmission is droplet, um, and uh, the current recommendation right now is actually you don't put patients in airborne precaution unless you have aerosol generating procedure like you're intubating someone or you're suctioning patients because that increases aerosolization in the air. So the short answer, most likely it's not airborne. Most likely it's not going to transmit through long distances. It is definitely something that is droplet transmitted, contact transmitted. Uh, some study would show that um, it can survive or it can remain in the air for about three hours. Um, and certain changes in humidity and temperature can also change um, the viability of the virus. Dr. Farney, you're clearly uh, well informed and uh, we really appreciate all of that. I've got a big policy question for you. Um, I don't believe that any of this is, is really preventable. Uh, in mm -hmm. other words, global pandemics. Mm -hmm. um, but what could we have done as a society or as a country to have been better prepared for something like this, in your opinion? So, so in my opinion, um, even before this this hit the, the fan, the, the fan WHO has already been warning, you know, the government that this is something that you need to watch out for. This is something that you need to be careful or, or prepare for. Um, and we just have to accept what, what, what happened. We didn't prepare that much. We underestimated the capability of the virus. And that is because, I guess, from the history of SARS and MERS that, you know, that also happened uh, in Asia, it didn't cause that much impact in the U.S. So that significant confidence, I think, made us complacent into thinking that this is not something that is going to cause a lot of problems with us. It's just going to stay in Asia. And WHO already know about it even before everything goes down. But, you know, we as a society, our government did not really prepare as much as we should have. Um, the other thing that we could have controlled is the amount of information that is getting distributed um, because we we acted late there's a bunch of information that came out and people started to panic um, you know the tissue paper debacle is a big issue because you cannot buy tissue paper anymore you know it's out all of the stores are out and because a lot of people think that that it's gonna be it's gonna be you know an apocalyptic type of picture where you just hoard everything but it's it's a virus it's basically like influenza but literally congested into a few into a small time frame you know influenza and rsv kills a lot of people uh over years in in one year but people doesn't panic about it because we know that it exists and we know that if you have the flu it's going to go away so you just go home but now you have cough and everything, you go to the hospital, and then, you know, the hospital is not prepared. We don't have a lot of masks. We don't have a lot of kids to test. And I think that's one of the lessons that we need to take from this scenario is, you know, we need to be able to prepare. We need to have a, a policy, a government policy in terms of what to do in terms of this outbreak. Um, a lot, and the other thing is, a lot of our materials are not really made in the U.S. Um, our masks are not really made here. So if one of the countries um, who has a significant effect on Corona um, suddenly slow down, you know, our supplies slow down. So I think those types of prepare, and you know, I don't want to make any political statement about it, but what I'm trying to say is, if we know that that is our, that is our, our way of getting those resources, we should have planned ahead and discussed that this is what we need to do. I think we just underestimated how far reaching you know the the spread of the of the coronaviruses um in terms of what else we can do, I'm not really sure uh, there's 
a lot of information that is lacking, but that's what I think is the main thing that we need to take out from this from this scenario. Yeah. I I, I have just a couple more questions for you. Huh? First one, I want to give you an opportunity to, to shout out uh, to somebody uh, with thanks or acknowledgement or anything like that. Is there anybody that uh, that you'd like to acknowledge um, during these particularly challenging times that deserves extra credit or recognition? Well, the the main people that you have to 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 definitely praise at this point are the medical frontliners. You know, Couldn't agree more. We, we we practice social distancing, and that's what the CDC recommends, and that's what WHO recommends. And a lot of people stay home, and that provides them protection. But you know, you have frontliners who actually come to the hospital knowing that the risk is going to be high, and knowing mm -hmm. that they're going to be exposed to people who sometimes lie about the travel history, which they do. And there's always this high risk, and you're basically gambling. Am I going to be the asymptomatic case? Am I going to be the mouth case? I'm going to be in the respirator tomorrow. But yet, despite that, and despite the the fact that you know that the hospital, your hospital is lacking equipment, or there's not much thing, not much, not much uh, testing kits available. Despite that, you still go, and you just have to face, you know, our, our doctors, our nurses, our volunteers, who who actually step up and and do these things. You know, uh, I'm like I mentioned, I'm not originally from the U.S. I'm, I'm originally from the Philippines, and a lot of the doctors there are are at, you know are going to front lines despite having handmade uh handmade uh mask and gowns that is that is just basically for 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 due to lack of resources they have to do and especially here you know our ER our surgeons our our doctors our nurses who who despite this very scary uh scenario still goes to the hospital so and you know you you cannot you cannot i i don't think you cannot put anything else above what they are doing um you know a lot of people are thinking don't know the id physicians are doing a lot we are but you have to understand that before we see the patient there are a bunch of people that they see before me mm -hmm. and those are the people that actually is the front lines you know I, when i see the patient i already know i have to be worried but when they see the patient they don't know they don't know if right. if that patient is something that they need to worry about and the sad thing about it is a lot of um the issues are instead of helping our our healthcare workers a lot a lot of the issues are turning into something that is political turning into something that is going against the medical professionals you know i've heard that people doesn't um agree with the distancing because they feel like um we're just saying that so that we don't have to see patients it's not it's for your own benefit it's not from our benefit you know we don't want you to get sick and you know just those people that that really work hard day and night is something that uh needs to be to, to be praised that needs to be to be looked up to yeah my husband and big brother are both firefighter paramedics and i really admire their strength during this time because not only are they going into uncontrolled environments of a house and and subjecting themselves to sick people but they're also around their families and um, just a, an unknown so you know i i totally agree with you that all these first responders really do deserve a shout out this is a scary, frightening time. It's unprecedented uh, and social distancing. And there's a lot of implications here that could last for years. Um, mm -hmm. What gives you hope right now, uh, whether it be the development of experimental medications and treatments and vaccinations, uh, social distancing, government's response, but what gives Dr. Prani hope right now? So the number one thing that you know gives me hope that this is going to be handled effectively is number one is how the medical community is addressing the situation. And I have to specify that the medical community, how, how it is addressing the situation. The government as a whole and the stock market, a whole different mess, but the medical community 
addresses the situation, I think, very effectively and how they manage to address resources and deviate resources um, is something that, that, you know, you wouldn't think would happen um, because of a lot of stuff that is going on in terms of, of trying to, to prevent, trying to figure out what this virus is. The other thing is, you know, I, I believe that certain events will, will show the worst of humanity, which is, it is, it is showing the worst of us. I mean, hoarding, people have been using tests that they shouldn't be using, people who go to spring break, despite clearly being told not to go to, but it also shows the, the best, the best in us. And you know, that is something that, that kind of gives me hope that it will be better. And I think one of the biggest thing is, we had this before, this is not a new scenario. We had SARS before and we had MERS before. We have data from history on exactly what can we look up to and what can happen. And just based on the history, based on what we know about the virus, based on what we know, uh, based on what we know about our, our strategy and what, ha what is happening to China and what's happening to Korea, as you know, and I don't know how, how good the information is China is bringing out, but the, the, their, their cases, new cases is becoming lower, almost zero on some, on some days. Korea also has the same thing. And now Italy is going up to the curve. And that is the big thing is as you look, as you flatten the curve, and you, you've been hearing this statement multiple times now, it's basically you try to limit going to the hospital and try to, to just stay home and then try to limit uh, using hospital resources. Once you flatten the curve of patients coming, being diagnosed and being diagnosed with cases, sooner or later, this is gonna be just a regular virus. This is gonna be an endemic coronavirus. And that's, that's what I believe. Um, I think this is gonna be endemic. I think the, the purpose of trying to prevent it from, being, from you being infected is not a, a goal, goal anymore because um, of how it spreads. So I think that is what some things that kind of give me hope is because we, we know what the course, what most likely is the course of the virus. We're hoping that it's gonna be seasonal. Doesn't mean that it is, uh, you know, what um, meaning as, as the heat and the humidity kind of goes up, we're hoping that it kind of decreases the cases. But again, we, we, this is the first time we're encountering this type of coronavirus, so we're not sure if that is gonna happen. But hopefully all of those, because of what we know from history, what we know from the other coronavirus, and what, we, what the medical community has instituted in response to those history, I think gives me hope that this is something that, that uh, we can eventually uh, get past through. Doesn't mean it's gonna happen tomorrow or next week or next month, but you know, eventually. Dr. Frani, I know this might be a hard question, but in your professional opinion, how long do you think it's going to take for um, us as a nation to get past this and, you know, to the point where we're not asked to be social distancing? So that is a very difficult question to ask. Um, the reason why is I think at this point in time, we, we don't know yet exactly how the virus acts in different scenarios. Like I mentioned, you know, the, it shows in terms of temperature, you know, in terms of temperature, cool, hot, humidity, temperature-wise, uh, research have shown that, that uh, um, climate comes into play uh, in terms of stability of the virus uh, outside the human body when it gets expelled. Uh, the greater the time the virus remains stable in the environment, the greater the capacity for it to infect other people. Um, and now that the the heat the our, the temperature is going to go up and the humidity is going to go up, um, we're hoping that based on the seasonal characteristics of other viruses, that it will follow the same pattern. Um, and if that happens, then it might be within a year. But like I mentioned. This is going to be something that is new. Um, I'm not comfortable, you know, trying to figure out how long it will take because this is a fairly new uh, um, scenario that we're dealing with. That's understandable. 
So to conclude this episode, I've got uh, one last question for you. For all our listeners tuning in today, can you give us some good hygiene tips to keep us safe? And then also, what are the symptoms that we should be looking out for that are more of a red flag for coronavirus? Mm -hmm. So the best way to protect yourself is to avoid social gatherings, the social distancing thing. It doesn't mean that you stay at home and lock yourself and starve yourself to death. You can go and buy stuff, you can go, but, but you have to understand a six feet rule, meaning you, as much as you can, you distance yourself from the next person of at least a margin of six feet. And that coincides with the droplet. Number two, and probably the best recommendation is hand wash, proper hand washing. You know, there is no better, there is no other measure in medicine that can prevent infection more than hand washing. Not, you know, not uh, putting a mask on, not putting a, a gown on, it's hand washing. And you have to hand wash at least 20 seconds. And what I like to do is I, I, I sing happy birthday in my head three times. And mm-hmm. then wash my hands, my wrist, my nails, and make sure that every time I eat food or I touch my face, I wash my hands. And you know, so meaning if you go to the to 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 the store and you pick some stuff and you buy some stuff, don't touch your face. Just pre- consciously prevent yourself from touching your face. Go home, wash your hands, and then you can touch your face. You know, how much you want. But yeah. hand wash is the best way to prevent it. If you have a minor illness, like for example, you have a scratch or a small wound or something that does not need emergency medical attention, do not go to the hospital. Do not go to the emergency room because you're, you're basically overwhelming the healthcare uh, personnel. And you're also increasing your risk of getting the virus. So if you have, um, let's say you started, you, you have a small, uh, small wound in your, in your, in your, in your arm or in your leg that doesn't look infected, that's very small and stable. Don't don't go to the hospital and ask for antibiotics. Or, and if you have symptoms, symptoms meaning cough, fever, uh, colds, shortness of breath, one of the one of the things that most hospitals are implementing is giving them a call, giving ER a call, and asking them, is this something that 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 um, I need to go to there to be tested on, or can I just stay at home? Because most hospitals have a policy of calling in first, meaning they call you first and they ask in, and they decide if you can go home and be quarantined or just stay in the hospital. So, and the other thing I wanna, want to to emphasize is stop hoarding stuff. It's not helping. Stop yeah. hoarding a mask. It's not gonna help you. Stop hoarding tissue paper. It's not gonna help you. If you get, you know, the packages, you can get packages. It's, it's, you know, it's not for, the, the virus can leave up the surfaces in about three days. So if you're getting packages from somewhere else, it will, it will take a few more days to get it. Um, but don't, don't hoard materials that our healthcare workers can use. Like N95 mask, regular mask, gloves um, are my advice to our doctors or soon to be doctors who are, who are listening, stop prescribing hydroxychloroquine to yourselves. It's not going to help um, at this point. We don't know the efficacy of it. And, you know, the other thing, the most, I think the most important thing is as much as you can, you know, um, a lot of our, our hospitals are needing um, um, resources. Some hospitals are able to accept donations. So if you can donate, that would be great. Um, because the main goal is to flatten the curve, meaning the main goal is to make sure we don't have a lot of cases, a lot of people coming to the hospital being tested if they don't need to be tested. Um, and just, um, I guess, be nice to each other. You know, it's, it's, it's not something that you should be, should be trying to, to uh, fight over. You know, I just recently see people fighting over toilet paper in Walmart. So mm. it, it's 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 not a, it's not an apocalypse. It's it's a virus that we know. It's good to be prepared, but but you know you have to you have to know which one to follow. And the other and the last thing is 
always it's good to know look for information but always verify so don't listen you know if if let's say a celebrity tweeted this doesn't mean that it's correct but doesn't mean that it's wrong either you know once you see it then you verify on your own meaning go to actual websites that that have actual information like IDSA CDC WHO it's always nice to get information. I'm not saying people do not to get information. Get information as much you can, but you have to verify. You know, I've heard about the garlic stuff. I heard about, um, you know, cracking up your air conditioner to to very high levels. Mm-hmm. I heard about people buying mosquito repellents um, because they said that it, it, uh, it, the virus is now vector-borne. You know, so, uh, so all of those are not correct. So... The, the garlic, I'm not sure if that is from a bat. Is it because of the vampire thing? That That's not going to help you. It's going to make it smell. <laughs> yeah. The mosquito, no. It's not transmitted by mosquito. It's not a vector. So mosquitoes can transmit dengue and malaria, but 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 not corona. It's a mm-hmm. virus. Antibiotics are useless. Right? Yeah. And, you know, cracking up your air conditioner does not do anything. So it, it's... You have to be a very, very, very cold temperature for you able to even slow down the effect of the virus or a very, very hot temperature to kill it. So basically, that's about it. You know, if you have any questions, I would suggest to go to websites of IDSA, which is the Infectious Disease Society of America. Go to CDC, which is the Center of Disease Control website, and the WHO World Health Organization. Uh, I would refrain from looking at, although I'm not saying they're wrong, I'm refraining from looking at Forbes.com, Huffington Post, Rappler, or whatever website that doesn't have actual credit, actual actual references to to support it, and base base what you know on on actual facts and not on hearsay. Well, Dr. Franny, I cannot thank you enough for giving us some of your precious time today. All the information you shared with us was truly so valuable, and we really appreciate it. Yeah, no, no problem. And thanks thank you for giving me the opportunity to kind of shed a light on, on, on this. Well, thank you so much. Have a good day, guys. All right, you too. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's bonus episode of the Doc Lounge podcast. On behalf of Pacific Companies, I am sending you all much love. Remember to stay safe, healthy, and positive. We're all going to get through this together. Have a great day, and until next time.